Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to The Evolver. Sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen. Hosted by Ken Jordan. For many of us, the encounter with a plant spirit medicine like ayahuasca is a mysterious process wrapped in serendipity. The person with the medicine appears in town once in a blue moon, usually heralded by an email that you're forbidden to forward, but which came to you in a way that seems perfectly timed by the universe. There's a sense of being called by a force that somehow knows you and is waiting to be revealed. Bizarre synchronicities happen that, in retrospect, seem to have been arranged by mystical forces to introduce you to a level of truth that you never suspected existed. For many of us in the West, the invitation to take part in a psychedelic ceremony has an almost otherworldly character that, because of its spiritual resonance, we almost don't want to pierce to demystify, because the workings of Source are so beyond full explanation. But it's different for the indigenous cultures that have held these plant medicine traditions for centuries or millennia. For the Shipibo in the Amazon, say, or the Bwiti of Gabon, the visionary plants are woven into the fabric of their societies, as much as Sunday services are in ours. These plant teachers don't emerge from the shadows with a whisper. They are always present and respected. In those societies, the rules of engagement are clear, and it's understood how best to hold the container for the experience. In recent years, as plant medicines like ayahuasca and iboga have gained traction in the West, there's been a lot of tension between our society's attitudes about what it calls drugs and the sacred nature of these powerful messengers. It's a clash of worldviews, one that mirrors an even bigger clash between our materialist consumer culture and what's necessary for sustaining human life on the planet. In fact, the curandero who comes through town is only part of a much larger network of relationships that makes your experience drinking ayahuasca possible. In today's episode, I speak with three expert activists who are dedicated to making those now hidden relationships visible, legal, and supportive of healing in the fullest possible way. Ben Delonen, the founder and executive director of ICEARS, Andrea Langlois, who is ICEARS director of engagement, and Dennis McKenna, who we welcome back to the podcast for a second time and who is an ICEARS advisor. ICEARS, which stands for the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, is an international nonprofit working to shape a future where psychoactive plant practices are valued and integrated parts of society. It's a pioneering and inspiring NGO based in Barcelona, where it runs many programs focusing on the legalization of plant spirit medicines, as well as the adoption of best practices for the cultivation and use of these entheogens in modern Western society. This is a different kind of show than we usually do. 
We cover a lot of fascinating ground, exploring what it means to be an activist on behalf of the legal use of plant spirit medicine today, and where the front lines are in the effort to make these healing practices available to everyone, everywhere. The mystery of the universe works through us, asking us to be grounded and to hold proper space for it to appear in our lives. Sometimes that means you have to dive into policy debates and legal structures and even deal with the United Nations, as ICERS does on a regular basis. Will wonders never cease? Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Welcome to this edition of The Evolver. We're doing things a little bit differently this time. Uh, most of our shows have been one-on-one sessions where I talk with a guest about that person's awakening experience and how they bring that awakening experience into what they do in the world. But today we have a special edition 
uh, brought about because Dennis McKenna happens to be in New York, and we were talking about doing uh, part two to our first episode from a few weeks ago, which we did by Skype, and thought it would be fun to kind of have it all face-to-face in the space where we're equally present. Um, And as it turned out, this is the weekend of the Horizons Conference, which is one of the large psychedelic medical and academic gatherings that happens around the world, talking about the latest research and trends in the in the psychedelic community. And some folks are coming in from out of town, and and Dennis mentioned uh, maybe it'd be great to have them on and talk with them about what they're doing. So we have Ben DeLuna, who is the founder of ICERS, and Andrea Langlois, uh, who works with him, is on the ICERS staff. Uh, ICERS is the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, based in Barcelona, a philanthropic tax-exempt nonprofit organization, which is dedicated to the integration of ayahuasca, iboga, and other traditional plants as therapeutic tools in modern society, as well as the preservation of the indigenous cultures that have long been using these plant species as part of their habitat, their botanical resources, and their culture. Dennis was uh, suggesting that it would be really great to have uh, Ben and Andrea on to talk about what they're doing and sort of bring folks on this side of the pond up to speed with what they've been cooking over in Barcelona. So I want to welcome you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. Pleasure to be here. Dennis, it is always a pleasure to have you here. Let's start with your relationship to ICRs. You're an advisor? Yes. How did you get involved with ICRs? I've known of their work for, for some time, and I really uh, support and admire what, what they do. I think the first time I really became aware in a sort of personal way about their work was their first Ayahuasca World Ayahuasca Forum in Ibiza, which I think was uh, 2014 or something. And so I attended that and learned more about their work. And then I attended their subsequent uh, World Ayahuasca Forum in Rio Bronco in 2016. And then I, at uh, MAPS, the last MAPS uh, Psychedelic Science Conference in 2017, Ben was there, of course. He asked me to be an advisor, and of course I accepted because I think they're one of the most effective organizations when it comes to the preservation of these sacred plants, their habitats, the plants themselves. They address legal issues. They have an ayahuasca legal defense fund. You know, they're just great people and and ethical people, very concerned with the preservation of indigenous knowledge and the plants and proper use, and they're right on the cusp of this, you know, this very difficult time right now when these plants, which have always been indigenous and sort of marginalized that way, now these plants are emerging onto a global stage. There needs to be an organization that that is on the edge, that is a bridge between those two things. How do we shepherd those plants into global culture and maintain the truth of it, maintain respect for them, the indigenous cultures, and help the world at large learn how to integrate these plants. Because I think everyone here recognizes that, you know, their potential for healing is enormous. 
so they asked me to be involved, and I'm happy to be involved. I really admire Ben for the work he's done. All the ICERS people, great bunch of very dedicated, ethical, decent, hardworking people. <laughs> <laughs> when you first went down to the Amazon many moons ago. Before the Earth's crust cooled or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> right. So it can feel like, I mean, like it's amazing how fast things go by and you blink and you go, oh my God, the world has changed so much since yeah. X, yeah. Y, or Z. Did you ever imagine at that time that there might be the need for an organization like ICERS, other organizations like with that kind of focus to play this role of helping to shepherd the the movement of the plants from the Amazon into a more stream global culture? Honestly, I, I don't think so. I mean, in 1981, when I first went to the Amazon to do my field work on ayahuasca, I was in Colombian Amazon in 1971, but that's a whole other story. That was my whole brother and my going down, not knowing what we were doing. But I returned to the Amazon the Peruvian Amazon in 1981 to do my fieldwork as a graduate student from the University of British Columbia. One of the topics of my focus was, I would call it a plant. It was a plant complex. It was ayahuasca and the admixture plants. And that was part of my thesis work. It didn't really occur to me. I mean, I was just an ethnobotanist. It didn't really occur to me that that you know, 20 years later, 30, 40 years later, there would be such global interest, you know. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you know, people were going down, to the buckets. I mean, like this is, it was a very obscure. It was totally thing. obscure. Yeah. Only a few anthropologists and botanists knew about it. Nobody cared. Of course, the indigenous people knew about it. And there was a, you know, even in mestizo culture, there was an active, it was an, you know, important part of their ethnomedicine. But, we didn't, I don't think at that time anyone could look that far in the future and realize that at some point ayahuasca was going to take over the world, you know, or certainly become known worldwide. Uh, I mean, it was just a different time, you know, and I, I just wanted to do my, my thesis work and, you know, investigate what was of interest to me, the chemistry, the botany, and all that, published my thesis, which I did. I never in my wildest dreams assumed that it would become the part of a, basically a history-transforming process, maybe even a, an evolutionary process. When did you first get the inkling that that kind of thing might be going on? I had inklings of it, I'd say, in the early 90s. I would say... Because coming down at that point, I, I found that there were more and more ayahuasca tourists there. There weren't so many, but, you know, going to Iquitos, which I'd worked out of 10 years earlier, there, were very, there weren't any tourists. When I went down there in the early 90s, I ran into a few people, you know, at these scuzzy hotels we were staying at. You know, these Americans, why are you here? Well, I'm here to take ayahuasca, you know, we're going into the jungle. That was the first enclave. And where have they been hearing about ayahuasca, those folks? Various those places. I have to say that uh, I think that uh, the publication of Luis Eduardo's book. Luis Eduardo Luna. That was, you know, Luis Eduardo's book with Pablo Armaringo, the visionary painter, right? That book was published in, I think, 1995, but it, it, it harkens back to the mid-'80s, 1986, 
or five, 85 when Eduardo was, was there. I was there with him in Pucallpa. I introduced him to Paulo Amaringo. Pablo Amaringo was a was painter. the visionary painter who started really a whole new school of Amazonian painting based on these ayahuasca visions. So he and Eduardo collaborated. I mean, how that collaboration formed after the introduction, Eduardo could see you know, there was great value in what he was doing. And he was actually able to, when we met him in 1985, I introduced Eduardo, he had never imagined painting, visionary paintings. He was a local high school teacher. He was in a band. He was a creative guy. He painted, but it was all these realistic paintings, you know, of animals and plants. Not really very good, but good, but not really good. And when we got together, and I'm here I am coming back six six years later, I introduced him, and Eduardo said, well, at, at, when we spoke with him, of course, Eduardo is Colombian, so he speaks perfect Spanish. I didn't. So when I met him the first time, a lot was not revealed, you know. I mean, it was very superficial interaction. When Eduardo and I went there the second time, Eduardo asked him a lot of questions, and, Ed, and, and Pablo said, you know, revealed that he had been a shaman. He had been a curandero and had gotten into a shamanic battle with other curanderos, brujos, you know, bad people. And he had stepped away from it because he came to the conclusion that either he was going to be killed or they were going to, somebody was going to die out of it. So he just gave it up. But he stopped practicing, but when we came in '85, he said that he, that he had been, an, you know, a curandero. And, and Eduardo said, "Well, do you remember your visions, or you remember your experiences?" And and Pablo said, "Yes, I remember them all perfectly." And and Eduardo said, "Well, have you ever thought about painting them? Because we just showed he just showed him some paintings. It had never occurred to him to paint them, but." you could see the light bulb go on over his head, you know, and we came back the next it's morning. It's so interesting. I mean, it, yeah. that somebody as deep in the culture and so connected to those visions as Pablo Amaringo, it it had not actually occurred to him to make a two-dimensional trapped right. realization of those. It took a gringo exactly. or a friend of a gringo to show up and suggest right. this as a form, basically, of a global artwork That's expression. right. And, and uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it took a gringo who's probably in the back of his mind thinking, there's got to be a way to monetize this, right? <laughs> but but that, was, that was not the thing. Uh, you know, so after we had that conversation, we went back to his place the next day, and he had produced the first four paintings and he, how innocent this guy was, he didn't put his name on it. It never occurred to him to sign these things. He gave us these paintings, which we still have. And that was the beginning. And then he and Eduardo formed this alliance. He helped Pablo set up a school in Pucallpa for the, for the kids to come to learn painting. Not visionary painting, but just painting. And he started producing all these incredible visionary paintings. And eventually, they published this book, The Ayahuasca Visions, The Religious Iconography of a Peruvian Shaman, which showed 
you know, a coffee table book with full-color reproductions of his paintings on one page and Eduardo's explanations on the facing page in English what these things were all about. So that was a window onto Amazonian cosmology or into the ayahuasca cosmology. And that book uh, was published by North Atlantic Books, and it was on all the, you know, certainly alternative bookstores. So it became well-known. And I think that it, that was a trigger point. I think a lot of people saw that publication, and that was really, that really marked, I think, the beginning of a lot of the ayahuasca tourism. Because here's was something, a world, fascinating world that people could relate to. And, you know, there's a certain romance about going to the Amazon to find your shaman. It's like going to India to find your guru. It's the whole Carlos Castaneda mythos, you know. And But people could see it in this beautiful coffee table book with all these illustrations. I really think that's where it started because that was about 19, I think it was probably 1995. And it really got going after that, you know, a few and then a few more. And then and then in the early 2000s, Alan Shoemaker, who's an American expat living in Iquitos, organized the first, uh, uh, inter, quote, international conference on uh, shamanism. I was there for the first one. And I think that those conferences on that book is really what got the thing going. Ben, when did you first hear of ayahuasca? Probably kind of in 99 or something like that, maybe a little bit before, but it was not until 2006 when I when I actually tried it. It was actually Iboga where, which first got my attention and which really got me on the path I'm now in because I made a film about it as a film student. And just seeing the transformation that it was you know, generating in people with serious drug dependency issues. Uh, so, you know, that's what really got me drawn in. But then after my experience, obviously, I thought, what a, you know, what a potential is in these experiences and then slowly started to learn more. I did it in a Colombian setting with um, a Taita Kerobin, a Colombian Taita from the Putumayo region, and then also went to the their territory in, in Colombia and was able to experience it within a very intimate sit, uh, setting with seven Kofan Indians where I saw it's not just only about, for us, it's all about, you know, healing and personal development. But there it was very much about the community as well. The, you know, they made jokes in the middle. It was, you know, there was a lot of kind of social things happening there. No? So so that's a, kind of how I got to this. So you, so you began with the boga. I didn't try Iboga myself until kind of five years after I made the film. You know, I, my, my film was done. I started to public speaking about it. You know, this is so important for addiction uh, treatment. And I got very inspired by Howard Lotsoff, who was the man who lived here in Staten Island, who discovered the anti-addictive properties. Uh, and just, you know, he inspired the movement. And I became part of that movement in, in a way as a filmmaker. I really kind of observing people got so convinced that this was something very important for the world. I did it five years later. I had a very hard experience after my 10, 10 hours of visions. I thought, what a horrible drug, you know, this, why did I spend five years of my life, you know, <laughs> promoting this, uh, you know, for the use of addiction. But then I didn't know that then the other 24 hours of the experience come where everything starts to make sense. And I really thought, wow, this is just incredible, no? and the potential of this for, for society. So mm. to go from, I'm interested in this, I make a movie about it, film student, one more subject on a list of subjects you could possibly explore. 
hmm. to being something where you're committing, that you're being called to work in this area. What was the thing that triggered that for you? I think it wasn't so much my, I mean, my personal experience really catalyzed that, but it was just observing human experiences, being next to the bed of people and seeing what processes they went through, you know, in different parts of the world. And also for me, I went to Gabon. I, I filmed the whole Buiti initiation, which is a five-day process, and seeing how the whole community got together, like sometimes 30 people, all generations, you know, the elders to the young kids, all supporting one person going through a rite of passage. That, with that's, Iboga. With Iboga. I mean, that's that's what integrated and valued practice looks like no? in, in these cultures that are, you know, thousands of years old probably in, in Gabon. So, so just seeing how it was all integrated in the social fabric, how this one person who was ill or disintegrated from their community then was reintegrated by everybody who was witnessing that process and, and supporting it actively through music, through, you know, very intense five days of, of work that the whole community was done. And just observing that was so inspiring to me, you know, that afterwards I really wanted to tell the story. And when the film was done, you know, in my public speaking as well, I could see people sometimes even very, I remember one time in Antwerp, 500 kind of conservative women, 50 plus, all in the audience. I was uh, 24, you know, standing in front of them and then just, you know, talking about a film about a psychedelic plan or a psychoactive plan. But then seeing how they almost got angry that Ibogaine was not more researched and made available because they're really connected to the human experiences in the way that I had connected to that when I was making the film. So that's that really what got me on the path, I think. How did ICRs actually begin? What was the, what was the, the first thing that you did in the context of, of this organization? And what was the mission? The mi so moment? after a few years of pub, you know, publicly showing the film and really you know, adding a little PowerPoint after the film and really becoming an advocate for, this, uh, you know, for the integration of this plant in our, in our society, yeah, I think kind of things evolved and I had a little film production company and doing other editing work didn't really fulfill my soul anymore very much. So at some point I was like, I need to set up a nonprofit and really start working from there. So I, I initially saw it more as an educational organization to, you know, bring a, a message about these strange plants from strange uh, cultures in a way that was accessible to people here. When you say here... Where I mean, in, in kind of the West, I was in Europe, no, I, yeah. do, I studied in Amsterdam, but kind of more in the West, no, kind of making those messages available so people could understand the value of these and the knowledge of these indigenous communities, but also the plants and the role they can play. So you would do workshops, you do presentations? I was doing presentations first at film festival, but then I ended up doing them in psychi you know, psychiatry uh, conferences in front of, you know, a thousand psychiatrists and me there, you know, young with my film. So I kind of felt I was really promoting that and that's, you know, so it was first educational and then people started to join kind of in a natural way, the the team. We, we organized the first Ibogaine conference in, um, in the health ministry of Catalonia in Spain. Some people who worked, you know, one person, Oscar, a colleague who worked there, then, then joined ICERS and organically the team started to grow and new ex expertises came on board, scientific, more policy. And it and it's really in the beginning it was an organization that was just kind of volunteer volunteering work you know in in the hours that I had free, but then at some point uh, maybe in 2013 it started to grow more and we really started to respond to the social needs that we were seeing, the the people had around these plants. So no? what, what was the primary social need that hit you that made you that really 
One, Beyond one, like people just being curious, it's like oh, okay. Well, one of the first ones was in 2010 when an arrest, a raid happened in Chile during a ceremony, and two different people contacted. As I said, you know, there's a raid. People were raided during a ceremony. Luckily, right before drinking, because there was a police infiltrated. Drinking ayahuasca. Yeah. And these were people working within a tradition of Peru and then kind of adding psychotherapy afterwards and, and before. So we got involved in the defense and I could see just the, the whole, um, you know, tension between their idea and their understanding of how they were serving humanity. And then the prosecutor's discourse, like, this is all just an excuse to, you know, take DMT and it's all horrible and wanting to put these people in jail for a long time. And then we started kind of bringing, you know, scientific narratives together with more human rights narratives. I wrote to the International Narcotics Control Board to ask about uh, Ayahuasca's legal status, which they said it's not under international control. That letter served the case. So kind of building a solid narrative, solid arguments ended up then, you know, with a very good uh, defense team and the, and the defenders that really fought all the way to the end. Then all of a sudden resulted in this judge being really interested in ayahuasca and really recognizing it had been beneficial for the participants. It was not illegal in Chile. You know, it was a, really a good outcome, no? So, so we kind of really saw there, you know, this is becoming important, it's becoming more known. And we have to engage with these challenges of legal prosecution, of kind of human rights issues. And the other thing that started happening is that people came to us for support after having challenging experiences, integration support. This was at times when they really didn't talk much about integration, 2013. And so we started to offer a free service. We still do. We've supported hundreds of people in their processes, sometimes real adverse situations, not properly held, not properly informed, and sometimes just people who had you know, impactful experiences that need integration. So, so. you would be offering, what, a weekly <coughs> gathering? No, this would be like one-on-one, -on -one, two yeah. video conferencing, you know, uh, application, uh, in a way, kind of support, psychological support to people, psychedelic emergency sometimes or integration support. So we've been doing that since 2013 as well. And then in the last few years, you know, I think we have really matured our, our, our focus, we have sharpened our strategy and we've kind of started to work, kind of unite the different lines of work we had into one more united strategy, which is really aimed at transforming society's relationship with these plants. You know, that in indigenous communities, it was very much... They really valued this and they really embraced uh, them, while here it's still very much based on stigma, you know, uh, prejudice and, and prosecution. Andrea, how did you get hooked into all of this? I'd say about, yeah, 10 years ago, just started developing, met, met someone, um, ended up becoming partners with someone who was an ayahuasca researcher, so had that blessing of being able to hang out. What with is an ayahuasca researcher? <laughs> someone who's basically for an academic pursuit researching ayahuasca, writing about ayahuasca, so started hanging out in a lot of the more academic circles, going to conferences, becoming very personally interested. Um, I'd been working in the field of HIV AIDS, uh, harm reduction drug policy for many years, and you know, years of, you know, looking at the research around psychedelics, around ayahuasca, and then looking at the other work that I was doing and seeing that really people don't have, we don't have a lot to help people with, you know, mental health struggles or with addiction, um, that there's not much out there to actually really get to the heart of what might be able to potentially help people, which quite honestly still frustrates me today and motivates me. So I had, of course, my own personal experiences, yet I think there was a turning point for me that I really wanted to 
put my attention to something positive um, and creating a future where people have access to care to actually, you know, really help them with the root of, of different issues or just be better than well. So, yeah, actually, it was kind of just at the exact moment I decided I wanted to really switch switch channels. I happened to run into Ben. We had met in L.A. at the plant, uh, what was the con- Congress? Visionary plant uh, convergence. No? Convergence, uh, CETA's Cita, conference yeah. in L.A. And um, then we met again and we were at a, a conference in Amsterdam where I was presenting on psychedelic drug policy and drug policy reform and the intersections. And yeah, Ben and I just started talking. And next thing you know, I was at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Rio Branco and then joined the team. (laughs) I got to say, I mean, just listening to this now really hits home for me. And I'm sure for many of the people who are listening, there is a social phenomena now of psychedelic conferences that are Mm -hmm. happening around the world Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And you probably could spend like you could spend all year yeah. hopping <laughs> planes from psychedelic conference to psychedelic conference, kind of like what Dennis does, without doing keynotes mm-hmm. uh, and participating in this emerging global network, yeah, which it's frankly, community. five, yeah. seven years ago was unthinkable. This did not exist. Yeah. This is a new phenomenon. And I just had a sense that I needed to be at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Brazil. I'm not sure why. And yeah, by the time I walked away, I had agreed to work with ICERs and mm-hmm. you know, it was two years ago. Okay. So tell me, what are those conferences like? Who's going, I mean, is it, are, you know, if I was Joe Rogan, I'd say, are people tripping all the time? Like what's actually happening at these conferences? Well, I would say our last, and maybe you can talk a bit about that. You've been in both, but I would say our last World Ayahuasca Conference in Brazil was a bit like a six-day ayahuasca process of interculturality and kind of overcoming deep-rooted colonial relationship background. And, you know, in between, there were conflicts between kind of different groups that were attending, indigenous groups, some religious groups, you know, it was like, who are these Spanish people to come and colonize us again? That was how the conference kind of started, you know? And then there was this whole journey of understanding where other people were, kind of getting different perspectives on things from mixing and then at the end talking about the future together, you know, and what are the next steps. And so for me, it was one of, I guess, the richest uh, professional experience I've had just witnessing and being part of that whole process. Uh, I mean, you were there. Yes. Well, as you know, I, I do go to lots of psychedelic conferences, and there's no lack of choices. I, I have a hard time finding the time. I don't like to say no uh, to these things. But these are not conferences where people go to take a bunch of drugs. These are not like a rave party or Burning Man. Or These are pretty serious conferences where you get – People in various disciplines from from policy, the policy world, the medical world, the world of ethnobotany, environmentalists, who are all, you know, trying to come to terms with what is, I think, a global process of transformation, mm-hmm. you know, and they're serious people, you know. Um, I mean, sure, I suppose some people go to this conference and looking for drugs, they're they're likely not to find any mm-hmm. <laughs> or they, unless they bring their own. And if they take if they take drugs at the conference, they're, they're likely to have some of the most boring trips that, you know <laughs> they've ever had. <laughs> Your idea <laughs> is to be tripping out while you're while listening to people discussing policy and medical mm-hmm. and research. You know, I mean that's not my idea of a re- you know, rewarding psychedelic experience. These are these are serious people who don't 
take these drugs casually. They take them very seriously, and they recognize what their potential is, both for healing in medicine and also, I think, and this is what I one of the things, one of many things I like about ICERs, they're at the cusp, they're at the juncture of of this social phenomenon. You know, it's not simply that these are medicines. They certainly are medicines that people can that can be used to treat many sorts of things like mental ill, you know, depression, PTSD, all that, even physical illnesses. But their importance and applications are not limited to that. They can be used. These are medicines that might benefit everyone. You know, I some I mean not everyone should take it, but it could benefit you do not have to be ill to benefit from these medicines. They can be used to learn how to become better people. And that's often how they're used in in these indigenous societies. They're they call them plant teachers. They are truly that's very apt because they are teachers they teach you about the plants. They teach you about your environment. Basically, they teach you to be better human beings. And that is really important because we need that. I sometimes say, you know, these are medicines for the soul, you know. And the soul, as, as a species, our soul is wounded. As people, our souls are wounded. I don't know anyone who can live in this society without feeling wounded in a certain way because there is so much discord, so much hatred, so much division, all of these things. These medicines can take you, sort of let you step out of that reference frame, look at what's happening, and become a better person person and then teach other people to to do it or, or you know just bring the energy from what you learned to your interactions with uh, other people and that's I think that's tremendously powerful I think you know I think one of the things that if they're medicines for the soul then medicine has to recognize that there is a soul you know a global a species and a personal soul so that's a huge shift in perspective yeah, I think your question, Ken, is great because we're we're just planning the third World Ayahuasca Conference that will happen next spring in Girona, which is just north of Barcelona in Spain. And we've been asking ourselves the question, like for us, the conference is is an opportunity to bring the community together to talk about hard issues, but really thinking about it's like what what is our common purpose? And I think at ICERS, we're really thinking about it. it's like the planet, the plants, and and ourselves that we need to come together to unite to think about what does a better future look like for everyone. And ayahuasca is one thing we have in common that we believe, you know, despite all the – well, with all the diversity of practices around ayahuasca, that that's one thing we have in common is that sustainability for life in the planet – in part, you know, is is due to looking at the health of the human species and our own souls and, and what can we bring to the conversation. And so I think for the next World Ayahuasca Conference, our goal really is what happens when we bring, you know, upwards of a thousand people together who all have one thing that interest in common, which is ayahuasca, and think about what can we create together for a better future for for everyone. I mean, one of the things that's been going on recently in this world and has been, I feel, in so many, so many ways really wonderful, has been the, the general embrace of the medical research around plant medicines. 
and you're seeing you know this pioneering work that's being done by Maps and Hefner and but there are also some folks who are watching this going, you know, that's such a narrow way of thinking about plant medicine. And Andrea is giving me a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. And absolutely. Yeah. I would love to dive into this a little bit because it's on the one hand, it feels to me it's a tactical approach. And I love mm. what Maps is doing. It's fantastic how they're they basically are making it much more accessible. There's a shift. The Michael right. Pollan book is an expression of that. And boy, he just focuses entirely on the medical applications of psychedelics, right? But there is this other expanded realm of what psychedelics are capable of, what they do, which also has an implication of on what it is we think of ourselves as, what humans are, right? And somehow that sometimes gets left out of the discussion at some of these conferences. And I'm wondering how you guys feel about that. Well, I'd say it's definitely the space we're trying to hold. I seers and and what we're up to in the world, it's really valuing diverse practices and, and really saying that all approaches are valid and also bringing the idea of culture to the conversation, you know, working with the people who stewarded this knowledge for many years who currently cannot travel with their medicine. You know, and thinking about all that we can learn when we move beyond the individual. It's like, of course, healing for PTSD or, you know, end-of-life anxiety on the individual level is extremely important. Yet, you know, what about what this has to offer to communities for community connectedness, cohesion, decision-making? And so bringing that forward as well and thinking about ideas um, around global mental health, which is a concept out of the World Health Organization to think about how how do these practices also impact the health of the whole community? So moving beyond just the individual. So yeah, I think holding a space open for for diverse approaches um, to working with with the plants. Yeah, I agree. And kind of also because we are at the intersection of kind of the psychedelic world and then more the indigenous world, you know, you know, you go to a psychedelic conference and there's a lot about medical uses now, you know, and I think it's great because it really has uh, changed the fear uh, response of society to these substances, no? So it really got us a a whole way. But then if you go, uh, last September, we brought a group of indigenous leaders from the Putumayo region to the UN, to the Human Rights uh, Council, where they talked about the role of these plants of yahe or ayahuasca in their communities for the survival of their their group, no? And it's just such a different narrative. It's just such a different discourse that doesn't connect at all with uh, kind of the individual, um, you know, healing. Uh, even though they have that aspect as well of trauma in their communities because they've lived in an environment of uh, armed conflict for so long. You know, for them, it's also about decision-making processes within the community, you know, and they talked about this example of uh, when when oil companies or mining companies want to come into their territory, the indigenous peoples have the right for, to a, a prior, free, and informed consent. So they can really know what they're up to, what the risks are, and then they're offered, you know, money or cattle or whatever it is to the community. And these processes, this is a human right they have to have those processes, but very often they break up the community. They really made the community very weak because some accept the money, others say, no, it's going to pollute our grounds. And what's, this, what's the problem? They, these processes are done within our ways of negotiating. And they said, you know, one time it went, okay, was when ayahuasca ceremonies were used as the method for decision-making or actually a representative of this oil company or mining company came in and had to sit in ceremony with them. And the whole community participated in it and talked about, do we allow this? 
you know, and it was just at the end they decided let's go somewhere else, you know, and and the and the community didn't fall apart. So if you see those uses of of ayahuasca, you know, it's something very different or very far away from just a medical use. Yeah, I think every global energy company should be using ayahuasca before their board meetings. <laughs> yes, in, in yes making and major all decisions. members of con- Congress, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing: the medical applications and the science. The science brings its gravitas to this. The science somehow legitimizes this research in the eyes of many people, because in the eyes of many people, science is a a kind of religion itself, you know. But if there's science behind it and they're finding medical applications, then, you know, it's seen in a whole different light. But as you said before, that is a very narrow way to look at this. This is something that's happening on the global scale. Uh, And I actually personally believe it's happening on the evolutionary scale. This is an evolutionary shift. These plant teachers, it's so interesting that the message that people are taking away from their ayahuasca experiences, their mushroom experiences, their other psychedelic experiences is a message about the planet. It's a message about the mess we're in and the crisis that we face and how we have to shift our consciousness first before we can really address the problems that are impacting our planet so greatly. So it's so interesting that that seems to be the the message of these plant teachers to the world at large so you can't restrict that to a medical a medical treatment i mean it in you know it just doesn't fit you have to find other ways institutions centers some way that you can get this out to the people and not just medical patients you uh, you know it's potential for creating social solidarity dialogue between different groups indigenous groups global groups and all this it's a catalyst for this global evolutionary change that either must happen or we're in deep doo-doo <laughs> if it doesn't happen, and it needs to happen fast. And these things are catalysts for that change in consciousness. So on the regulatory level, on every level, we have to find ways that we can be, that we can, you know, welcome these medicines into communities, indigenous communities, obviously, but even communities that have never really integrated them, but they're really looking, you know, find, trying to find ways to to do that. We have to find ways to make the regulatory frameworks realistic. And this is one reason I so admire what ICERS is doing, because they are working with this on the on the legal level. They're working with smart attorneys to change the laws on a global level. This is incredibly important. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So I have to ask, you know, you're talking about the importance of representing indigenous peoples working with plant medicine, bringing them into a context where they can present their work or what their, their culture in the appropriate context in order to affect policy. Your own team, do you have people from the global South, people from the, from the Amazonian or say Gabonese local cultures on the team working with you? Because, you know, I mean, I'm looking around the table here at a bunch of gringo white folks, and that often is the case of what happens with NGOs or not-for-profits doing the good work on behalf of, quote-unquote, the other, right? And what's going on right now is we're discovering that there's no other. <laughs> and those, but it's more about disenfranchisement and, and, and difficulty actually getting into the positions where you get access to the funding and support that you have to create these kinds of institutions, like doing the good work that you're doing. But by not having that kind of representation directly from the people who are being represented, you can run into some challenges around priorities, around tactics, around all kinds of things. And I'm wondering what thoughts you might have around that. Yeah, I don't think we represent indigenous peoples, for example, in the UN. I think what we try to do is convene spaces or facilitate their way in so they can represent themselves, no? And, and so that's what we have done in the UN. That's why this World Ayahuasca Conference, for us, are not a, an end goal. It's, it, they're a tool. Uh, and bringing together all these, you know, indigenous communities. We work also a lot around kind of regulatory frameworks in, our, in more Western countries, no? So I guess we always try to convene space to work a lot with the grassroots, but be a bridge also because we have United Nations consultative status. We kind of, you know, we can bridge kind of the reality of the grassroots of indigenous cultures, but also more Western ayahuasca culture. And then kind of really out of that, uh, try to come with legal strategies to, to defend them, uh, you know, to kind of with the community um, think about what is this future that we want to see. And then go to the right venues to kind of make that advance, uh, that goal. No? Yeah, well, and I think mm. pulling off of what Dennis was saying around this thing that happens where people drink ayahuasca or, or engage with another psychedelic and then they have this experience of I am, I am, we are one and I, I care about the planet and I'm of the planet Earth. I'm indigenous to the Earth. For us, right. I think, you know... Um, if if ICers can have the ear of people in the West who are waking up because of these experiences, you know, we want to then present people with information around, you know, this is what's happening in the Amazon. You know, people are struggling to maintain land rights. That You know, if you care about the plants, do you care about, you know, these other issues that are really being faced, life, life or death issues by Indigenous people, that it's not <clears throat> just about ayahuasca, it's about, about, you know, territory, about cultural rights, land rights security and safety of persons. So, yeah, I think the this idea of building a bridge 
And also, yeah, helping connect between different issues. Um, we can't, you know, be on the ground in the Amazon doing all this work, but our hopes is that we can we can build bridge and help people access that knowledge and information about how to work in solidarity and support, and, and just be more aware of what the struggles being faced by the people who are the traditional holders of these plants. I just want to say, I think Andrea just put her finger on a very important point, which is we're all indigenous to Earth. Everyone is an indigenous person, and these are these are global issues, you know. And so, some people say, "Well, you 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 know, you're you're mis you're appropriating these these cultural treasures from from indigenous groups." I don't agree with that. I think that I acknowledge indigenous groups for being the stewards of this knowledge, but to access to these plants or any plant should be a fundamental human right as long as the plant and the environment and the relationship is respected. In other words, uh, what's going on here in my perspective as a biologist who is interested in the interactions between, you might say, the global the global phytosphere, the flora of the planet and human beings, it's always been an evol- a co-evolutionary relationship. And I can see paths to re-articulate this relationship. For example, people worry about the drug problem. What are we going to do about the drug problem? How about step one? We articulate the principle that plants are not drugs. They're different than drugs. We get drugs from plants. Sometimes we purify drugs. But the basic idea is that that if you reframed that and basically said people have the right to form a symbiotic relationship with any plant that they want, that should be a fundamental human right. And that changes the whole tone of the legal conversation. What gives the government any right to stigmatize a plant like cannabis, for example, as a good example? Say this plant does not deserve to exist on the planet. Who has that authority? Mm-hmm. You know, governments arrogate to themselves that authority, but it's completely wrong. You know, I mean, because it just is. No one gave them that authority. So if you could change that conversation and say, yeah, we're, you know, as people who want to prevent people from being harmed by drugs— Let's implement a framework of reasonable ways of regulating drugs, you know, white powders, things that, you know, in a pure form are potentially more harmful. When it comes to plants, we're not interested. People should have the right to grow them, trade them, consume them, you know, uh, with a knowledge base of how to do it right. But the the government should not step in and and say, you can't have access to this plant. What's the end game for the legalization process? Can we imagine a time when the society is mature enough for the government essentially to say, hands off, be hands off, and allow everyone to use the plants they want to use the way they want to use them? Or does that invite another kind of crisis in our society, as opposed to, say, the indigenous cultures that have been working in a traditional way with ayahuasca or iboga or, you know, other, you know, powerful, uh, you know, plant spirit teachers, they have a way of, quote, unquote, self-regulating 
their use. Yes, but we have to borrow. We have to learn from those traditions. We can implement that knowledge in our own way. Of course, you have to have context so that you can use these things in as positive a way as possible and as healing a way as possible. But now, being primates, you know, there are going to be people that abuse the use of these plants. But if the overall perspective is that there are positive ways to use them, then you know, that will become the prevailing prevailing practice. And if it could be used in a in a social context in any culture, perhaps centers where people can go and have these experiences, like people go to South America or, you know, then I think bringing the uh, the healing potential of these plants to a wider audience rather than just the the people who have medical problems, you know, and want treatment. I think we have to make it more widely available in a way that fosters all of these things. I'm wondering if you also might see the possibility that we're inviting in the kind of crisis that happened in the late 60s with Mm -hmm. LSD. I think the question that we're asking, you know, and I think a lot of our work focuses on is like, what would it look like if these plant practices were integrated and valued in societies? Yeah. Right. So I think that's a lot of what you're talking about, Dennis, is, is, and I think sourcing is really important. So I think even though maybe we have a right to the plants, thinking about the origins, who's benefiting, um, sustainability, um, safety containers, which I think, you know, learning from people who've used these for, for decades or hundreds or we don't know how many years, you know, what does that safety container look like? Well, how do we self-regulate? How do we, now as a community, you know, some of these things aren't being regulated in different countries. What if we were to build that from the ground up the way we want to see it? Mm-hmm. What would that look like? You know, so I think these are really important questions to be asking. Is that the kind of work that ICERS is, is currently this doing? This is the yeah, heart of much. what we do. Mm-hmm. So and tell I, me a little bit about also, how that's developing in mm-hmm. terms of what you would like to see as a legal framework. Well, I think, you know, what many people think is kind of all these things are illegal now and we have to work towards legalizing them, no? And uh, kind of with with uh, molecule psychedelics, that's the case, they're illegal. And so there's the medical path is one path towards making them available and then later on maybe expanding and, you know, that's kind of one ro- road towards access, no? But, you know, in, in the reality is that at the UN level, uh, they distinguish um, DMT, mescaline, kind of the pure molecules from the plants or br- the plant brews. Now, like in this letter that I got for this court case uh, from the UN, they said no plant or concoction containing DMT is under international control. And then at the national level, there are some countries uh, where these plants are specifically illegal. That's not so many. In many countries, it's really a gray area. So, and within that gray area, there are people of all kinds of groups of all kinds working with these plants. Some, some within ancient structures, uh, ancient cultural structures that have been existing for a long time. There are Western people that go to indigenous communities and they become apprentice and they do the dietas. They kind of really become part of that um, kind of cultural path and they bring that to the West. There's also the churches, no, that were started in Brazil. They then have globalized. There's chapters in many countries. They are working within a system that's been existing also for now almost a uh, uh, hundred years. Uh, so it's also about how can we accommodate those already existing systems within our our, our culture uh, in the moment where there's a kind of a legal gray zone, uh, where there's new 
kind of more um, also ceremonial um, ways of working that have emerged, but combining different uh, techniques, no, or adding psychotherapy or different. There's different. There's a whole variety, a whole spectrum of, of uses. So what is important, what we're working around is kind of how, on a grassroots level, can the can the community organize in a way uh, with this uh, kind of a collective strategy, upholding collective responsibility, so it can move towards a place where actually not only within the medical model, but within this variety, there can be, uh, you know, self-regulated access uh, to these practices that's safe, that which is within a safety container. Uh, and then kind of really government seeing that actually this is not a threat to public health and actually giving space for that to to occur. No? So I think that's very important to realize there's an opportunity. It's not a far from our bed show necessarily where we have to change all these laws. I think within the kind of the current status of and clarity, there's an opportunity to really, uh, you know, for the, the collective, the community to organize in a way that shows, the, is a living example uh, that these planned pra practices are in the hands of responsible communities and addressing behavior that doesn't fit within that context. Yeah, what you hear now is that, that legally the line may go cannabis legalization moving, th you know, towards recreational use and then mushrooms being the next thing they may go into like a, a broader sort of legal acceptance. Do you guys work on... In well, yes, that's all good. Cannabis, then mushrooms, then ayahuasca, then iboga, all that's all good. But, it, but why not just make a general reform of the way that we relate to these plants? You know, it's important to remember that humanity has had a symbiotic relationship with these sacred plants for thousands of years before there was an FDA or a DEA or a UN or these other regulatory bodies that have appointed themselves the authority to tell us how to use these things, somehow we've survived. Do we really need that? Mm. You know, I mean, that is a very top-down approach to it. The, in my opinion, the correct approach is education. Say, all plants are open to human use. Here's knowledge about how to use them to maximize the benefit and minimize the risks. That's all that these bodies really need to do. Yeah, but realistically, is this going to happen? Well, I mean, realistically, ah, no. <laughs> but maybe. Well, actually, things are I, I shifting. Yes, actually. Things are shifting, yeah. I mean, a, a big culture. part of it is how many of the people of influence are able to have the experience. Once mm. they have the experience, mm. they get it. And they can go out and make changes. It's also an issue more about culture than it is about drugs. And I think that's been a real um, shift, I think, in the way ICERS has been approaching things or even talking about it. It's like if we look at the plants, they've just kind of gotten caught up in this net of drug control, right? When it's right. really a lot about culture. And even if we think about what is integrated into our society look like, it's actually about developing a culture where it's normalized, valued, that it's understood that they're they're not toys, that they're tools or plant teachers. And so we're, we're actually— I think, you know, going back to the question of what happens at psychedelic conferences, I think we're we're talking about what does that future culture look like where these are part of an integrated above ground part of our society. So is it all just about the drug laws? In part, but part of it is about can we shift culture? And it is shifting, whether we like it or not. And so yeah. It's Let's an educational it. issue mm -hmm. as much mm -hmm. as anything. And, yeah. and, I, and I think also kind of our work within the courtroom to me is fascinating because, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. 
So there's this prosecutor who then says, you know, these are bad people and they're giving DMT, they're drugging others with DMT, no? That's the discourse. And DMT is illegal and should go to jail for 15 years. And then you come in and you're kind of starting to paint the cultural landscape of these practices. Very often, these are people who are, are apprentices in these traditional cultures. And in a world with interconnected uh, societies, culturally interconnected societies, you know, these practices travel and there's, you know, this whole these things are going on. So when you put that in front of a judge, there's a lot of tensions that start to occur. It's like, yeah, but the drug control system says it's this and it's really reductionistic discourse. Like it's DMT. No, it's not DMT. It's not even a brew. It's a whole practice with a lot of things around it, no? And, and even at the UN level, they distinguish these, these two things, DMT from ayahuasca or mescaline from peyote. So I think we work with the tensions between those different um, yeah, kind of uh, systems of human rights, cultural, and, and then the drug control system. Uh, and I think there is room to maneuver. And when we, you start with an accusation and wanting to send people f to jail for 15 years, and you end up with an acquittal or, you know, there's definitely something there which makes a judge doubt whether they, they should understand that that's actually, yes, DMT and an illegal substance and should somebody send somebody to jail, no? I think, you are, know. Are you seeing a lot of acquittals now? In terms of the court cases that are happening, generally speaking, what's what's going on on the ground? The people who are getting arrested, are many of them getting re released or how many people are actually in jail? Well, first of all, I want to say that, you know, even though if people are acquitted, generally it's really a, a traumatic experience, no, that the people go through when they when they are busted, are, you know, arrested and then uh, led to the court. To give you an example, in Spain, for example, there's been a country with most arrests, more than 50, I would say almost 60, and we've worked with a whole bunch of them. Um, nobody was at the end um, convicted except for one who declared guilty out of fear. She had no you know, support in kind of this, knowing that she actually had a, a big chance to, to get free. Also, Spain has very good drug law, so that needs to be taken into account. But even in very restrictive countries, like in the U.S. now, we've been working with several cases, uh, one which seemed very serious. Very often they also say the whole weight of the bottle, which can be uh, two kilos of ayahuasca, they say that's two kilos of DMT. And you're going to go to jail for 15 years, no? So that's kind of the situation. We just two, after four, four months of, you know, horrendous house arrest and really being in a very difficult position, we worked with the case and really brought the arguments to the table. And at the end now, uh, it seems like it's going to end up really in, in nothing. No Where worry. is that case? Well, I can, you know, oh, for, you yeah, ah, the, it's okay, not right, completely sure. close. So I can give more, more details about it. But what I'm saying is in some countries where it's really not very clear, we have ended up with acquittals. And, and sometimes some sentences, court sentences, judges recognizing the legality is really either not clear or it's not illegal. Or science really demonstrates this is not a threat to public health. Um, you know, so we are making progress in the courtroom, no? And I think that's why the courtroom is really an opportunity to educate judges, also ambassadors now when there's a citizen from Peru who's now busted in Russia or wherever. We get now the embassies involved and we educate them. And because there's a big tension between the way the cultural protection in Peru, for example, of these practices, and then the way they understand it is a very dangerous drug in, in other countries. Uh, so you're we, finding that the ambassadors are receptive to what you're, they don't just sort of dismiss you out of hand as like crazy no, we druggies? Have, with several, we have been working, engaging, we, we have good relations. And uh, at the UN level, there's a lot of diplomats, you, you know, you, human rights uh, experts. So also if they're from a country, we're working around court cases, we connect 
we we connect the dots. That was that's what we're doing, and because we're working internationally around legal defense and, and human rights, we can really see trends that are happening and bring successful. Uh, strategies from one case to another uh, mm-hmm. translate beneficial outcomes, uh, you know, g- acquittals with good argumentation of judges in one country, and then present that in another country to a judge and say, "Look, this is what they are concluding in other countries." No? So, um, for the for this to change on a global level, though, do the laws have to change in the United States first? And I and I ask that mostly because, as I understand it, Dennis, you know better than me, probably, the wave towards making the these drugs illegal, these drugs, they say, these plant medicines illegal, started with the United States, putting them on Schedule One, mm. and then the United States choosing to push that mm. on other countries right. through its foreign policy right. and enforcing mm. uh, that the, the, the drug laws overseas and creating this kind of you know, black market environment for all kinds of substances which had not been illegal locally before. Right. And I'm wondering whether, and, and, so, and then the United States prioritizes the drug laws here in its negotiations with other countries when it talks about, whether it's with, with uh, developing countries but with aid, around aid, or military support, or whatever it can, it sort of pushes the drug, um, the, the drug law agenda. And so it's great to hear that the UN doesn't make these distinctions between, say, DMT and the plant. But the UN doesn't have the same kind of legal stature. I uh, think in, I think that, you know, obviously that's what you say is true. I think, uh, I think an obvious solution is to push for political change in the United States. You know, there have to be changes in the drug laws. What we're seeing in the current administration is regression to another, just when we think we're getting to a place, then, you know, our attorney general comes along and, you know, says, oh, we're going to crack down on cannabis again, you know, following a model that we know doesn't work and disrupting many more lives. So we definitely need changes in administrations to change the approach and and have a common sense approach. I would like to just for a minute say something about uh, what you addressed before about how often in these ayahuasca busts, these ayahuasca cases, they have a leader of ayahuasca and that's represented as a leader of DMT. It doesn't work that way. Obviously, there's maybe 1% DMT in these things. But the... The prosecutors being, number one, ignorant of science. Number two, it serves their purpose to pretend that there's a huge amount of DMT. It's like the old days in with acid busts when they'd say, well, the weight of the blotter is the equivalent of the amount of LSD. Well, this is absolute nonsense, you know, and it's nonsense with ayahuasca. And... Uh, and so I think one approach or one thing that the defense can, an, art, uh, an argument the defense can present is insist on rigorous science, you know, insist on good analysis of these things so you can actually have present numbers. You've got a liter of DMT, but actually there's 500 milligrams of, you've got a liter of ayahuasca, but maybe there's less than a gram of DMT in in that whole thing. So that's one thing. I also think that 
biochemistry can also help us get a, a, a better perspective on this thing. Because DMT is a very simple molecule. It's everywhere. It's not an exaggeration to say that nature is drenched in DMT. <laughs> we are drenched in DMT. There are a few plants that are used in making sacred medicines, like ayahuasca. There are tens of thousands of species of plants that contain DMT. They're not regulated in any way. You know, well, I mean, they would be, I suppose, if you made, you know, people are making ayahuasca. But the important thing, the, the point is that DMT is everywhere. <laughs> are you going to make all plants illegal? Because that's where you're going. DMT is such a simple molecule, two steps from tryptophan, which is in every living organism on the planet. Are you going to make a law that any plant that contains any amount of DMT is illegal? Good luck with enforcing that. Good luck with even identifying those plants. We don't know what they are, but we know enough about how commonly DMT occurs in plants. It's not an exaggeration to say that probably all plants contain some DMT. Yeah, all plants may contain DMT. Yeah. But, and uh, we do too, by the way. Our human brains contain DMT. Actually, in one of the court cases, the defense analyzed the type of lemon. Where, yes. Uh, and, and <laughs> Lemons. There, there was a scientific publication that showed that there was some DMT, DMT in there, and they actually reproduced it, and they found it. Uh, you know, saying kind of, you know, lemons now uh, illegal, you know, so it's, yeah, it's exactly what you're yeah. saying. Mm. So th they have to cut down all the citrus groves in Florida because they contain this illegal substance if they were consistent with, you know, the, the conclusions around this. The Santo Daime and the UDV in the United States have won the right to use ayahuasca in certain states. The UDV actually at the at the national it's level. National. Yeah. yeah, it's national, but they're only located in two or three places, and it, you can't like travel with it across the. the I don't the, know the about that. The Supreme yeah. Court decisions are national. I don't know about traveling across state lines. I'm not sure mm -hmm. how that. Yeah, the Santo Daime is in a few states. Yeah, uh, the UDV they got a kind of a federal. They got a Supreme Court decision yeah, exactly. in their favor, After for 10 sure. years right. of fighting. And actually, very recently in Canada, uh, the UDV also got an exemption. And, uh, and one uh, Santo Daime church, um, uh, so Montreal, they also got it, got it. So it's kind of advancing. At the same time in Holland, there was a big setback recently um, because, you know, there, there's been kind of about 10 years ago or a bit more, there was a police raid in a church. Uh, they then fought and they won, and that was kind of the basis for a, a religious exemption. A few other churches got the same exemption, and then everybody thought, well, in Holland, it's now all legal and you know good for the for the churches to go. There have been incidents, and we have supported some of these incidents. One of an indigenous leader, uh, not so long time ago, whose feathers were taken away, his bottle, but then it ended up really in, in no uh, accusation. Because when you end. say an indigenous leader, somebody who was not working in the Santo Daime yeah, exactly. or church tradition, there were some doing a, a shamanic, right. doing a traditional shamanic mm -hmm. work. But even so some that's of the, the question. But even yeah. some of the churches, they were getting ayahuasca confiscated, so the situation was getting a bit worse. No, so what happened is uh, that one uh, a small group, which presented themselves as, as a Santo Daime church, they lost the court case, and then they brought their case. 
uh, within you know that uh, context of having kind of a, quite a good situation in Holland, they brought it to the Europe, European Court of Human Rights, saying it was them against the the, the Dutch uh, government. But they did it as a small group. You know, it's a very serious thing to bring your case to the European Court of Human Rights. No, so to do that, really, you need resources. You need top lawyers who are at that level, and then you need to really get all the experts, the researchers, all of that behind. And that was not the way they did it. So at the end, the European Court of Human Rights didn't accept their case, and they emitted a report in which they basically say that ayahuasca is a threat to public health, and that that's why uh, the freedom of, uh, of um, a religion doesn't apply. It's not a court outcome, but it's kind of their quick analysis. It's not based on any evidence. So they made that report, no? And then there was a, a, a TV program which kind of went undercover. They interviewed ayahuasqueros, and and basically there was some quakery that it brought to the surface, or it showed a bit that a lot of people were kind of presenting it as medical treatment or, or therapy. Uh, and they did a bit of a horrible, also sensationalistic, uh, not very cultural, sensitive program about it. And that was aired on national TV a few days before this initial uh, group of Daime uh, went again to court because this whole process was always in appeal. And then they lost because the you know the judge probably saw this program. Then they took into account this European Court of Human Rights outcome, and there was a setback. So so that really shows us that even there, if there's a favorable situation, there needs to be a collective strategy. There needs to be really the community needs to have things in place to you know address challenges that that come up. No, uh, so so how does that collective strategy get developed? Because especially when you're talking about the independent. Curandero. Um, and, you know, listen, I live in Brooklyn and there are days when you, can, you can't walk down the street in Brooklyn without bumping into some ayahuasquero uh, who's just returned from Peru, completely convinced that after six ceremonies, they're ready to serve <laughs> plant medicine to unsuspecting Brooklynites, mm. right? And this is, this is going on in all kinds of places. There's no way to really control this. And you don't want those guys going to court because obviously they have no clue what they're doing and they certainly can't defend themselves. This is just a matter of education. You know, you have to educate those people and people that might want to go to those ceremonies. I think, you know, I mean, it, it, is, it is a problem, but it, it can be addressed through education. Even people with no real qualifications to administer ayahuasca, maybe they've had six ceremonies, like you say, they hang out their shingle, they're an ayahuascaro. Their motivations are good. They, you know, it comes from a place of wanting to benefit people. But these, these people should be appealed to and say, you know, uh, learning how to use ayahuasca properly is a long, hard road. And if you're going to use it, we encourage you. We can't force you, but we can encourage you to educate yourself about that, study with real ayahuasqueros, learn how to use it. It's like going to medical school, you know? I mean, yeah, there are lots of quacks who can hang their shingles out. You know, I'm not saying in the ayahuasca, in medicine, there are lots of quacks who have virtually no medical credibility and they're peddling all sorts of nostrums and cures and all that. And that's kind of what the self-styled, you know, succession ayahuascaro is. There's no, you know, there is no university, no program that's going to certify them. 
and maybe that's a solution. Maybe if people want to become iOS girls, there should be something that's widely recognized that they could get into a certification, just like CIIS has a certification program for psychotherapists who want to use these, these medicines, psilocybin and MDMA, which are quickly becoming, you know, pharmaceuticals, essentially, maybe there should be similar uh, framework set up so that it, to train people to use plant medicines properly, you know, uh, to not say you can't do it because if you, you know, if you're consistent with, with what we said before, which is people should have the right to use any plant, but if they're going to give it to other people, and that's where the regulatory part comes in, maybe you should make laws say, if you want to give it to other people, take this this course, learn how to do it, and you'll harm fewer people. It's not so difficult. I think there's a way that could be found for this. When asking practitioners, I think, you know, like anything, if you if you have folks that are doing things in a great way and people know what to expect, then the market <clears throat> self-regulates to some extent. Yeah, so I it self-regulates. Yeah, we do have we do have ethical guidelines. We hear about people actually using them, which is great of, of things that should be considered around around best practices, around different kinds of um, you know, ceremonial practices in terms of, you know. Like, don't, you know, that the person leading should engage in sexual relations with the participants within a certain period of time, you know, and, and thinking about how do we how do we create guidelines like that, that people start to follow and expect that folks are following and and create a kind of dialogue. And I think while it's so underground and if people are afraid, then, yeah, there there's there's more difficulty in talking to each other about this. So how can we create safe spaces for these conversations Really, at a local level, I don't actually. First, I have a hard you time have believing. to bring it out of the shadow yeah. so that you can have these conversations, and, yeah. and then there will be nuclei of communities exactly. that are using them, and hopefully, those will be headed by experienced people who know how to do it, who are willing to share their knowledge with others. This is how you propagate it. This is how you propagate the knowledge. You know, so these places can become learning centers for other apprentice ayahuascaros. And there should be some kind of, you know, light regulation. But I don't think from the government. I think I think the community itself, mm -hmm. the community yeah. standards and if you're if you want to be involved in the psychedelic community, you have to meet certain, you know, kind of common sense ethical guidelines. Yeah. Don't have sex with your clients. I mean is pretty basic, you know. Uh, it's surprising, you know, how much that happened. I, and then when it comes to ayahuasca tourism and they attempt to, you know, regulate that because there are hazards, you know. Not everyone uh, of these centers operates by ethical guidelines, you know. And and we and since it is a global phenomenon, we need to have this conversation. You know, if they're catering to gringos or any non-Indigenous group, there should be some basic understandings about how the right way to do it is, the right way to approach it. You know, I mean, I was very disappointed at what happened when they, when a certain group of people started to try to start this ethnobotanical stewardship council a few years ago, because they had the right idea. They were, you know, they were naive. They had good 
they had good hearts. They didn't necessarily ha- know the right way about it, but the, you know, uh, they were treated very badly. I think uh, by the certain self-styled, uh, uh, you know, authorities of the uh, of the ayahuasca community, you know, uh, anthropologists and so on, who, again, nobody gave them that authority. They took it on themselves to say, you know. You guys are bad. We're going to stigmatize you. Well, this is the challenge of saying that it should come from the community. It should I remember come that, from the community. But when you say, who and is the community? not the academic community. It should come from the community that uses these medicines. Well, in some reason, I think it has to be localized in actual geographic spaces. You know, I think um, looking at different things that are okay in some cultures, the way we work, the the the, right. the, the ability to actually talk has to happen in a physical right. in a physical geographic area. So I think the idea of some kind of global rules around this is a really difficult thing to think. No, I, I agree. Yeah. I'm not, not advocating yeah. that. No, no, I don't think you local, are. Local, yeah. local, yeah, local rules, you said a definitely. Yeah. Is, mm. is, uh, is the way it should be done. Yeah. Yeah. So and what I, I is community you can, can set its own standards. Yeah, you create a community of attraction, you know, and there's enough kind of elders or people working in a good mm-hmm. way, they, they kind of start to have those dialogues and then really carve out the safety container. There's a community as well, like what is okay and what is not okay and how can we generate more of the okay behavior, you know, and then that will attract well, Others, think about integration. Uh, mm, Nobody mm. even said this word 10 years ago, and now everybody's like, well, what kind of integration are you going to offer? Well, mm. it's become a practice that that people are doing, seeing as beneficial, and now people are asking for it. So mm. I think, you know, good ideas spread. Mm-hmm. Um, not and to- hopefully at some point, the kind of integration will not be needed anymore yeah. because the practice itself is going to be fully integrated in society and kind of living in, in society will be automatically integration of these experiences. Right now, you have the most incredible experience. You go home or you see other people and you can't really talk about it um, mm-hmm. because they wouldn't understand. But that's what you see. What I saw in the Buiti in Gabon, you know, it's the whole community is part of, of this practice. No? So um, I, th- I agree. It needs to be kind of at the local or sub-national level or national level in small countries where groups of people get together and from the grassroots up really uh, start to help self-regulatory processes uh, that are inclusive uh, and that really kind of are moved forward by them. So, Are you seeing an example of that somewhere? Mm-hmm. Is there a local place where you can go like, oh, you know what, they really are getting it in this part well, of France? What, what for me is a very, like, you know, we have our office in Barcelona and, and I think, you know, we have this phenomenon of the Cannabis Social Club uh, there, which is basically a non-profit user association uh, model mm-hmm. uh, where some are for recreational use, some are for medical use. Uh, you then now have uh, already a, a few of those, but focused on ayahuasca use, no? And so in the Cannabis Social Club or the 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 the, the association model, then federations came up and they're very much kind of representing them and they have set certain rules uh, along with them. It's been a process. We've engaged with them to learn from how that process went, what they would have done differently. Uh, but they, these are, I think, slow processes that you know can be just done by a few and then say, sign here. No, these need to really be bottom up. Uh, but when that's done successfully, that really can work. And I think also, you know, kind of uh, Chinese medicine and how that was self-regulated in some place like California, there, there are examples also from kind of other uh, collectives that have worked in that way, you know, and, uh, you know, it's kind of the way for inclusive inclusivity and grassroots up, I think, is very important. And then bringing that to 
to governments because it's true. If the government, you know, if you say, can you please regulate this for us? They really don't know. They don't know what it takes to really regulate that properly. So I don't think they would do it very constructively. If we can't do this as a community, and I think it's the microcosm of the macrocosm, how do we create a better world if we can't even start to figure out of how to do it on a micro level? So it's a great exercise to start participating in. Dennis, is there a, a particular issue, a particular project that ICRs is now involved in that we didn't touch on yet that you want to make sure that we hit on before we close up? Well, I think the question should go to Ben or and Andrea. They are the at the center of ICERs. What's your most important project that's going? If you could mm-hmm. say, if you could identify what, because they're all important. Yeah, I think we've talked, you know, about the important ones. Uh, side of that, we are also involved in some clinical research, more with with ibogaine, which we haven't touched upon. Uh, right. You know, we have a project we're going to do in in Afghanistan, actually. Uh, for uh, people with drug dependency issues with opiates there. We have the first phase to clinical trial with uh, ibogaine for alcohol as well. It's now happening in Brazil. So we, we're working a bit in that and different kind of research projects, observational research, community health research. So, um, but then, yeah, kind of, you know, for us, we don't really have all these separate things. They, they, all, they all kind of connect in a strategy, you know, and I think what we have discussed kind of pictures the the direction we're going in in the space that we are holding uh, as ICERs kind of in this broader field, no? Um, yes, I think it's important. ICERs has uh, also a focus on ibogaine. That's mm-hmm. really, and iboga, that's really where they started out and then later got into ayahuasca. Iboga has not become such an issue, but potentially it will. And this is just, this is another one of these sacred medicines that has tremendous potential for healing and right now in this country and really all over the world there's an epidemic of opiate abuse and addiction this is one of the main answers to that mm-hmm. so it's in the interests of governments even to foster the avail- availability and responsible use of iboga mm-hmm. iboga and ibogaine mm-hmm. You know, it's a more difficult medicine to use than ayahuasca. I mean, there are definite hazards if it's misused, but it should be, again, integrated into practice because the potential is so great, you know, uh, and and it's also potential to change the world, just like ayahuasca is. It's almost like, on one hand, you've got ayahuasca coming out of the, you know, Western, Southern Hemisphere, and Iboga is coming out of Africa. But these are, you know, the two, well, I don't know, you can get all <laughs> I think the parallels is that they're, they're globalizing it. and there's there's challenges and opportunities. So one thing we yeah. haven't talked about is we are in, we are um, in, currently underway as a, what we're calling the Global Engagement Initiative around Ibogaine. It's, you know, pretty lofty saying global, yet what we're really doing is asking people in the community what they think the ideal future would be for Ibogaine and trying to look at, there's, there's some community cohesion issues there around, um, looking at how iboga ibogaine are globalizing you know looking at the points of view of patients people using it practitioners and then we're hoping to raise enough funds to actually do a field trip into Gabon and Cameroon to really just portray what is um, you know what is actually going on getting a bit of a sense sharing that and then looking at is there a roadmap forward is there some things that could be done to strengthen some of the approach because there there isn't as much connection I would say as what's happening around strategy around Iowa 
ayahuasca. And I think there's a lot to learn um, from that as well. One of the things you hear about iboga is that it's going to be extinct. There's, yeah, sustainability yes, this issues. This is a huge problem. Mm. Yeah, More than problem. ayahuasca, I think. Ayahuasca is... Sure. There are sustainability issues, but iboga, by its nature, has to be grown, and it has to be grown a certain number of years before you can harvest it. So this is a problem. This is definitely a problem. Yeah. So there's yeah there's there, there's a lot of you know issues, and then also the way you know treatment centers are run in more of a business model, maybe than ayahuasca ceremonies, even though those are a business model as well. And then also the the great potential around opioid, you know, mm-hmm. and and addictions, mm-hmm. and the you know real need for that at this moment mm-hmm. in time, particularly, um, is mm-hmm. really interesting. Is what you say? It's kind of it's a more difficult medicine to work with for you know effects on the heart and and so forth. So it's been a medical subculture very much. Unlike what to me is very fascinating, I think is a big difference from ayahuasca from anything, is that it globalized along with kind of a, a ceremonial context. No, for s- some reason, people when they say I'm gonna have an ayahuasca experience, they go to have a ceremony, whether it's really you know in a, within a religious context or it's shamanic or it's more neo shamanic. Um, but you know, it's not a kind of a substance that traveled by itself that people kind of get and then. Take, no, uh, Iboga became known through this discovery of Howard Lotsoff uh, as a treatment for drug dependency, and it it, be, it was a substance that became a medical subculture, uh, run very m- much peer to peer. No, it was uh, addicts, uh, self help groups that started to use it in the beginning, and kind of has been really moving within that f- f- uh, field, and now kind of I think is kind of global, starting to globalize and becoming more known uh, recently. Also more within ceremonial settings, I would say that I think there's a, an increased interest in people doing iboga for personal development. But it's a difficult medicine. You know, it's more important. Kind of if you make a mistake, people can die, you know. And so the safety issues are are serious and need to be addressed, again, as a, as a community and looking at minimum safety standards and then the sustainability thing around it as well. I, I think it's also important to, to recognize that in the case of iboga, the focus is, uh, for its therapeutic use, it's on addictions. But we're now enough people are working with it. We realize we're beginning to realize there is a much broader spectrum of of uh, medical problems that could be useful for, you know, neurological diseases, including Alzheimer's and Parkinsonism and other neurodegenerative diseases. There are indications. There's not good research yet, and there are not clinical trials. But this. If this is true, and the you know anecdotal reports are promising, then it should be investigated that way. I mean, Alzheimer's. If this is a treatment for Alzheimer's, you know, uh, what forty percent or twenty percent of people, you know, above sixty-five are going to have some kind of dementia in, during their lifetime. If this can slow down or prevent that. The government should not be prohibiting Iboga. They should be pouring billions into research. But, of course, they won't. <laughs> I want to thank you all for being here thank with us today. Thank you so much, Ken. Today. Yeah, thank you. It's, um, I think for many people who are in the plant medicine world, there's this tendency to kind of you know connect to it through the shaman who's coming through town or the group of people who you who are friendly with, who are also doing plant medicine that you're aware of somehow, one or another. But there's very little awareness of the broader political situation 
of how these medicines are coming to us in the West, how they're being integrated into our society, and what the legal framework is around what is understood as something that's against the law. Nobody really knows, maybe it may be legal in one part of the country or another, but nobody really understands. A lot of people just don't really understand what's happening with all of this. And I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing to create a a societal framework where we can use these medicines in such a productive way as part of how we operate as a community. How can folks find what you're doing and, and, and keep up with what iSeries is doing next? Yeah, so we have a website that's actually going to change uh, in a month or two. So, uh, but for, so it might be a little bit, look a little bit outdated now, which is iSeries.org. How you spell it? I-C-E-E-R-S.org. And then our kind of our blog is news.iSeries.org. Is News. News, N-E-W-S, uh, where I think people could find a bit more updated information on what we are doing. Uh, but again, kind of in a month or two, hopefully, is you know the the birth of the new website is going to be uh, done, and then we have another website, but it's that's all going to be integrated in in this one website. For now, the Ayahuasca Defense Fund or the the legal defense work, which by the way is not just only about ayahuasca. We call it like that. Ninety percent of the cases that come to us are ayahuasca related, but we're working around mambe, the coca leaf cases, uh, peyote, San Pedro uh, mushrooms, and and iboga as well. That is its website, which is defendayahuasca.org. Uh, but again, in two months, it will be all in, in one. And I think... Uh, and if somebody wants to get involved in that legal defense fund. And yeah, we have a social media. We have you know Facebook, Twitter. And we have another project, which is psycheplants.org, I think. Psycheplants.org, uh, which is actually a European Union-funded project where we uh, have been kind of giving information um, to people about the other traditional plants. Very, kind of recently, uh, these plants, ancient psychoactive substances are becoming, you know, caught in this uh, category of novel psychoactive substances, along with research chemicals, legal highs, spice, very new uh, molecules generally. And so we have been trying to kind of educate about you know, what is really the, the historic uh, cultural context of these ancient psychoactive substances, educating health professionals, uh, and also we have a support service to users there. So that's, I think, also a good website to check out, psycheplants.org. And I hope to see everybody at the Third World Ayahuasca Conference, uh, which the website is ayaconference.com. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's going to be in Spain, in Girona. So I hope everybody can join us there. Yeah. And as usual, I'd like to put a plug in for the Hefter Research Institute, not the Hefter, Hefner Institute, the Hefter, Hefter Research Institute, hefter.org, which is, as you know, a domestic uh, nonprofit that we're doing funding directly or indirectly most of the clinical development of psilocybin. That's sort of become Hefter's focus. So folks can find out about that at hefter.org. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank Pleasure you. Pleasure to be here. Earlier today, I was having coffee with a friend who had recently listened to a few of the podcasts, in particular three, the Jamie Wheel, the Dan Siegel, and the Gino Hugh. 
And he said to me, you know, these guys are coming from very different places. But in fact, they're really saying the same thing in different ways. And my first thought was, you know, we've done 20 of these shows, more or less. And that's my main takeaway. It's, you know, they're all talking about the same stuff. Because when you scrape away the surface, what's underneath is a kind of truth and understanding about what it is to be human that we're discovering through different lenses. But ultimately, the vibration, the core of it, is essentially, in many ways, the same. And it has to do with what it is to be a human being connected to source and to all that becomes available to us through that channel. But it's not enough to just vibrate at a high level and be closer to that truth. In order for us to do this as a society, we also have to change the laws we have to change how we relate to each other in order to hold space for this, this real truth. And that's the work that a group like ICEers is doing, which I so appreciate and admire. And it's really pioneering and important work. So I want to thank Ben and Andrea from ICEers for being on the podcast with us today and Dennis for bringing them in. And thank you for joining us. You can follow them at ICEers.org on their website, also their Facebook page. And you can also follow what Dennis is up to on his Facebook page. If you like what we're doing here at The Evolver, please share this episode on social media. Let your friends know and leave a star rating on iTunes, which actually is very helpful for us and greatly appreciated. You can send us a note at theevolver.net, theevolver.net. You know, we've been getting some really cool questions from folks via email. And we're going to put together a show, I think, where we're going to answer some of those questions, right? So I'm going to try my best. So if you've got a good question, please send it in and share it with us. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, on Google Play, and Acast, or on the podcast of your choice. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by the human experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.